But first, tomorrow is Earth Day. So we thought we would dig into some recent findings from the UN that detail the impact of climate change and ways that we can adapt and slow down the effects. Yes, the reports are grim, but don't despair. There are still ways that humans can avert the worst, but that's only if we act now. Joining us now is Christina Dahl, climate scientist for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Welcome to the show, Christina. Glad to be here. Also here is Michael Hawthorne, environment and public health reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Hey, Michael. Great to be with. Christina, when we say that governments and corporations, that they need to act now, we really mean now, right? Not not (laughs) next month or next year or, or in the next 10 years. We absolutely do. What we're seeing with these latest reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is that we've been experiencing decades of a failure in global leadership uh, combined with fossil fuel companies' single-minded focus on their profits and unsustainable patterns of consumption by um, the world's richest households. And all of that is putting our planet really in peril. We have a, a fairly narrow window of time in which to really significantly Uh, change the way we get and use energy in order to make sure we avert the worst consequences of climate change. You know, Michael, here's something that kind of comes up in in my day-to-day conversations. It it can be hard to wrap our minds around this urgency when there are so many pressing concerns right now, like gun violence, inflation, of course, this pandemic, right? So how how do we focus on these issues and and climate change at the same time? I think, you know, we have to have to, uh, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time, uh, multitask. Um, the the thing of it is, in the Chicago area, at least with climate change, we, we see it mostly with regards to heat, you know, the hotter summers. 2020 was the hottest summer in Chicago history. We also see it with uh, fluctuations, more rapid fluctuations in the in, in the Lake Michigan coastline. So, you know, historically, the, the lake ebbs and flows in terms of lake levels, um, you know, maybe over a 20, 30, 40 year scale. But what we're seeing now potentially is that scale sped up. Mm-hmm. And so investments to, say, uh, arm the, the shoreline in Chicago, the lakefront trail, for example, getting wiped out. If you're, if you're having to rebuild that every 20 years, you know, you can fit that into a municipal budget and people's taxes aren't necessarily affected. But if you're having to do it every five years or even faster than that, well, then it raises a question about, you know, what is the sustainable future of our lakefront? You know, as journalists, Michael, we often say that knowledge is power. How can knowledge help empower individuals to to make informed decisions about the climate crisis? Like, where should they start their learning journey? Ah, boy, that's, you know, I think reading through the, you know, the, the, that IPCC report, they do uh, essentially like a, a down to the level of, you know, a, a less scientific jargon, more just everyday language. You know, there's reports also that the, the federal government has put out that are focused directly on the Midwest. You know, again, water levels, uh, drought, flooding, those are the things that were already seeing in the Midwest, and we're likely going to see more frequently, extreme weather. Uh, look at the derecho, that, that horrible windstorm that swept across uh, 
Iowa and into Illinois. Mm-hmm. Is that two years ago now? Yeah. It's hard to remember with uh, with regard to the uh, in, in the pandemic time has uh, seemingly stopped in some ways. But um, those types of events and they they have serious consequences. For example, with flooding. Only the hurricane-ravaged areas of New York, Texas, Louisiana have received more federal flood aid than Illinois and the Chicago area during the last decade. It's it's not as obvious necessarily because in in Chicago and the suburbs, we're a very low-lying area. It's formerly a swamp. And what happens is it's a kind of a quiet, gross uh, burbling up of sewage through people's basements. And and most people don't want to talk about that. But that is being driven more by climate change because we're getting these quick, intense rainstorms. And our sewers that were built in the early 20th century just can't handle that. Yeah. Christina, let's get into that data. Michael mentioned the IPCC report. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, They examined science related to climate change. And uh, the group published three major reports. Hundreds of scientists worldwide, they worked together for years on this. So tell us, Christina, why is this collaboration so significant? And what do the three reports essentially cover? Sure. So the IPCC is made up of almost 200 countries around the world. It was formed by the United Nations and the World Meteorological Organization. And every six or seven years, they produce one of these major, major reports. Um, The first one was done in 1990. So this most recent report was the sixth comprehensive assessment of the state of our climate on the planet. Um, and, And it's released in three sections. Um, The first deals with just the physical science, what's happening in terms of our scientific observations of climate change and where might we be headed. The second looks at the impacts of climate change, how we might adapt to them, and how vulnerable we are uh, in communities around the world. Mm -hmm. And then the final piece, which was just released about a month ago, uh, looks at how we might solve this problem by changing uh, the ways that we get our energy and use our energy and what we could potentially do to limit future global warming by making those sweeping changes to right. the way we live. And, and today in our conversation, Christina, we're going to focus on the adaptations and mitigations portion of things. But how would you respond to folks who question the contribution of humans to climate change? So this most recent report by the IPCC uses the strongest language yet in any of its assessments that says that it is unequivocal that human influence is the dominant cause of warming. So it's important to remember that this represents the consensus view of hundreds, if not thousands of scientists around the world. This language is very carefully parsed and very carefully um, debated um, in sessions that involve member countries around the world. And so when the IPCC makes a statement like that, it is absolutely science and uh, a Mm -hmm. message that you can trust. Michael, scientists have been sounding this alarm for decades. So what is different about these reports now? I I think just the, the, you know, time is of the essence of we've missed many opportunities. 
different um, presidential administrations, the change in in uh, political leadership uh, at the at the at both the state and the and the federal level. Uh, you've got uh, a number of people, frankly, in one political party that. Uh, you know, for reasons that might include uh, funding by fossil fuel interests and also just contrarian elements of our society, um, they don't want to do anything. Uh, you know, dig more coal, uh, uh, pump more gas, all these kinds of things. The, the good news there, though, is is uh, it might not be happening fast enough, but the market is pushing things toward a cleaner future. And and then some legislation, for example, in Illinois, we've adopted a law that is going to require more clean energy, uh, the move toward electric vehicles, um, the move away from fossil fuels to generate electricity. In Illinois, we're, we're already, by the end of the decade, we'll be down to maybe one or two coal-fired power plants in a state that for the last century was dominated by coal to generate electricity. That's a big deal. And we still have these nuclear plants. We have more nuclear power plants than, than any other state in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, there are issues, obviously, with nuclear power in terms of the waste, in terms of, uh, you know, what happened in Japan with the Fukushima disaster. But that's, that's you know, it, at least as when that electricity is on the grid it's not emitting climate changing pollution that that's a big deal and, and you and say that's a big deal is, that around for a while is our government taking it seriously enough i you know i mean right now uh the biden administration does seem to be doing that you know they've set some goals uh you know uh, fossil fuel free energy nationwide by 2035 um they're up against some very powerful entrenched interests um you know, the coal industry, uh, you know, the gas industry, especially oil and gas. Uh, we're seeing it once again with uh, inflation driving up gas and, and, and the war in Ukraine yeah. uh, driving up gas prices. You know, there is a lot of evidence out there that the oil and gas companies are essentially gouging us. Uh, the oil prices don't need to be this high, but, uh, you know, various geopolitical issues with Saudi Arabia holding back on production, whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's going to make the transition messier than it needs to be. And we'll talk a bit more about that uh, later in the conversation. You know, something else that, that stuck with me when it comes to these reports is that um, they show that we have about 30 months to slash greenhouse emissions to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. That's actually less than three years. So I want to play a little clip of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres responding to the reports. The jury has reached the verdict, and it is damning. This report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a litany of broken climate promises. It is a file of shame, cataloging the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. So this is largely because not enough has been done up until now. Christina, what do you make of this three-year window? Well, the important thing to remember here is that we need to start reducing our emissions now. And 
ultimately, uh, the IPCC report says that we should start do, uh, seeing those emissions reductions within the next three years. But this is also a long game. And so if we look out to the 2030 timeframe, we need to be on track to be having our emissions by that time. And then by about 2050, we need to reach net zero emissions, meaning that any remaining heat trapping emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere, we're also uh, removing an equivalent amount so that we're no longer building up those emissions in the atmosphere. So, you know, while that 30-month uh, window is critical, it's also critical to be um, to be making those steps toward those longer-term goals, whether they're the end of the decade or the middle of this century. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Ahead of Earth Day tomorrow, we are digging into recent United Nations reports on climate change. Now, it's the latest in our weekly sustainability segment. My guests are Christina Dahl of the Union of Concerned Scientists and Chicago Tribune reporter Michael Hawthorne. Let's hear from Barbara, who's calling from Hyde Park. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Um, I wanted to bring up something that might be a slightly off the radar, and that is um, the Great Lakes, um, which is our major source of water in this country and 20% of the water in the world. So that that's part of our environment very significantly. And I wanted to bring up the fact that there are all these nuclear power plants along the lakefront, some of which are already being about to be decommissioned. We really have to keep our eye on that, how they are being decommissioned, how the nuclear waste is being transported, and what, uh, how much is a threat to our lake water. So, Christina, do you want to weigh in there on, on Barbara's comments? Sure. So as we look toward a future where we no longer rely on fossil fuels for our energy sources, nuclear is one option that is carbon free and, you know, so could help us in that sense to get to our net zero goals. At the same time, as, as Barbara mentioned, there are real downsides, right? There are safety concerns, concerns with the waste. You know, the good news is that other technologies like solar and wind and battery technologies for vehicles are, you know, they've come down so much in price in the last decade or so, so that those energy sources are really competitive in price with, um, you know, our more traditional energy sources like coal and oil and gas. So, you know, I think rather than focusing um, on the nuclear um, question and what that looks like in the future, we should be focusing on these these technologies that are more of a clear win in terms of getting us to clean energy and safe future. Michael, an- another takeaway from these reports is that climate change affects the whole world, right? There's no more thinking that some places are safe. Uh, that second report that was published in February, it uh, describes impacts of climate change by continent, so what are some of the impacts that stood out most to you? Well, again, I mean, it's, 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 you know, sea level rise gets a lot of attention, and obviously so. You've got places like Miami Beach, Florida, where, it, you know, there's water in the streets now. Um, and there are a lot of people live on the coastlines. I, I think of countries like Bangladesh that are, that are you know, already in these low-lying areas and during typhoons and, uh, you know, incredible human devastation uh, is just going to get worse. Um, and then once again, you know, here 
closer to home. It's, you know, what is what is a, a changing climate going to mean for the crop are grown in you know in the corn belt for example um can you know the if if it's not raining at the right time if you know all if 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 the temperatures aren't right at the right time you know you can't necessarily grow corn i I, i'm still alarmed by uh, uh what i heard from a scientist at iowa state university several years ago that they can't uh either the science different hybrids or whatever for for corn plants, they, they just haven't been able to figure out how to make climate tolerant plants because it's so unpredictable. And, and, and so much of our food supply is dependent upon that. Mm-hmm. So, so that really worries me a lot. And then once again, I mean, um, our, 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 our source of fresh water, the Great Lakes, um, imperiled by that, imperiled by a lot of things, toxic chemicals that, that, uh, that, that, uh, travel easily and widely, uh, and then air pollution. Um, hotter summers mean more smog, and uh, you know that is an immediate concern. Makes it difficult for people to breathe. We already have chronic air pollution problems here in the Chicago area, yeah. and based on the science, there are a lot of other places in the Midwest that currently aren't, you know, in violation of federal smog standards, but. The science would suggest that they should be. So that is that that's something that affects people's everyday lives right now. And Christina, when we say adaptation, right, we mean the ability to adjust to a changing climate and reduce vulnerabilities to things like flooding. What do the reports suggest that that would actually look like in practice? You know, unlike the problem of mitigating climate change, which is primarily um, something we can do by decreasing emissions everywhere and anywhere at all times, adaptation is going to look very different in different places depending on what a community's needs are. So, um, you know, along the coasts, there are different types of of, um, adaptations that communities could do related to sea level rise. That could be anything from raising homes and moving roads away from the water to organizing uh, a community level managed retreat where people basically decide to move their community um, inland. Um, so, but, but that's going to look very different from say, um, you know, inland California where wildfires are, you know, increasingly large and increasingly harming people around the state. And there, you know, adaptation might need to look like taking better care of our forests, making sure that when we're rebuilding um, after a fire, we're using um, materials in our homes that are less flammable. Mm -hmm. We're creating a defensible space around the home so that the fire can't burn right up to the house. So there are a lot of different ways that adaptation is going to look like, but this report makes really clear that the efforts that we've undertaken to date here in the U.S. and around the world are really insufficient for the level of adaptation that we need. Um, over and over again, the report emphasizes that what we are really in need of is transformational adaptation. So really rethinking you know, how our homes are built, how our communities are built, um, where we live, how mm-hmm. we support people who are on the move, all of those sorts of things. Um, are the direction that we need to go. It even talks about transforming economies. How would we do that? Absolutely. So, you know, right now, if you just look at um, 
for example, our response to uh, natural disasters. So we typically in the U.S. have a very uh, um, responsive reaction to natural disasters in the sense that uh, we're not doing a lot to prepare our communities ahead of time for those disasters so that they're not as affected. Instead, we tend to pour money into the recovery process, right, and helping people to rebuild often in the same place where they're just going to be in harm's way again. So we really need to be thinking about how we are um, addressing these risks and, and economically, how can we get out ahead of them so that we ultimately save ourselves money down the road? Let's hear from a caller who's been standing by. Here's Ken in Lombard. Hi, Ken. Welcome to Reset. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, want, I wanted to ask your um, uh, panelists if anyone is doing anything to make a report more accessible to the average person. I'm imagining um, <clears throat> several levels of increasing complexity, like, you know, from a basic headline tweet up to newspaper articles, middle school level books, high school level books, and then finally – uh, and, and each, um, finally, the report, and each level would um, refer to the level above it so people could ease their way into seeing this. Because I feel mm. like most most people, the best thing they can do is not these individual things. I mean, I try, you know, to do individual things, but the best thing we can do is to try to affect public policy. Yeah. And Good question, Ken. People are, you know, we've known for 40 years all these things, but the oil companies got their message of doubt out there ahead. And we need I, I wonder if anybody's doing that. Michael, do you have any insight on that? Well, I, you know, I haven't uh, gotten deep into it with this recent report. I do remember uh, two reports ago uh, there exactly what uh, the caller was talking about, uh, different levels of communication. And and one that always jumps out to me, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm, uh, you know, a 10-year-old on the playground, but but it, it really struck me that uh, there was a little handbook. It was like pocket size. You could put it in your back pocket, and, and it went through different parts of society, different economic sectors that are responsible for climate changing pollution. And one of those is agriculture. And one of those is the, the, the um, let's put it, the gastric emissions of cattle, which are considerable. Mm -hmm. they, they, when they chew their cud, uh, their ruminants, and uh, they belch uh, methane into the atmosphere. And methane is even more potent than than carbon dioxide. It doesn't last as long as the atmosphere, but it's it's more devastating to, to the greenhouse effect. And it it the the IPCC report actually just said the farts and belches of cows in the report. And it doesn't get wow. much more <laughs> okay. basic than that as far as I'm concerned. So, Michael, I want to touch back on something you brought up earlier. This week, the Biden administration resumed selling leases to, to drill for oil and gas on federal lands. That was in order to combat these high gas prices. But scientists are concerned about the effect that that could have on our planet, of course. So tell us more about what the report says about this. Well, I, 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 I think let's 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 look at it realistically. What the Biden administration just did is not going to affect gas prices any time in the near future. That was a that's a political thing going into the midterm elections, um, because the the oil industry has a lot of of uh, 
uh, public presence out there getting this message out that somehow if you don't drill more uh, that you are somehow part of the problem. The fact of the matter is there are all these leases that the oil industry already has that they're not actually using. So that's just, you know, nonsense, frankly. Um, But, you know, there are these other issues with when we're making decisions like that. I think about what what's happened. I, I wrote a story last year that after Illinois enacted the the clean energy law, uh, it's a big deal, right? It's going to drive uh, emissions down over time. But we also in Illinois are one of the biggest sources of coal in the entire country. Only four other states mine more coal than Illinois. We don't burn it here in Illinois. And there's one company in particular that uh, that sells this coal in the open market, sells it to places like China, sells it to Australia, sells it uh, to other states. And very few people work in these mines. It's very automated. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and they've had all kinds of pollution problems, polluting the water supply in southern Illinois. Uh, they dumped these toxic PFAS chemicals down one of the mines when there was a fire last year. And yet our governor just approved a, a permit to discharge uh, polluted water from one of these mines into a major waterway in southern Illinois. So the the, the power of, of the fossil fuel industry is very evident, yeah. both in what the president just did and what the governor just did. And, and in the long term, that makes it even more difficult for us to do something to actually prevent these horrible consequences of climate change from from just getting worse. All right. I'm going to turn to you in a moment, Christina, to kick off our discussion on solutions. But I want to hear this comment from Peter, who's standing by in Westchester. Hey, Peter. Welcome to Reset. Hi, Sasha Ann. Thanks. So I'm what you'd consider a very early adopter, and I'm willing to pay for that. Um, But I run into a lot of hurdles with that, too. I put 21 solar panels on my house a couple of years ago. Uh, But ComEd got to limit the size of my installation to that. I wanted to do more, but they told me I wasn't allowed to. Uh, I'm still waiting on my state rebate for the renewable energy credits, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're a year and a half in to that process. So that's money that I've invested that I expected to get a return on that I haven't. I also took the gas heat out of my house last summer or at the end of last summer. Um, I paid more for a unit that didn't have gas heat, and thankfully I'm handy enough that I could install it myself. But it would have been a significant, you know, yeah. five-digit number to have somebody else install that for me. Um, I also went with an electric car at the end of last year for my wife to drive as her daily driver. But because the federal government didn't pass all the legislation that I was hoping for, I did not get a rebate on that. Uh, so, you know, you, you do these things, and, and thankfully, I mean, I have three kids and two dogs, so yeah. my environmental, you know, my carbon footprint isn't great, but I'm trying to do all these things, and I'm thankfully in a position where I can afford to do some of them, you know, finance and, and debt and everything else. Yeah. But yeah. it would be great if it was more supported by, you know, the the legislative agencies. Yeah, no, that all sounds good, Peter. You know, thank you for, for doing your part. Uh, Christina, weigh in here. What What else can individuals do to lower their carbon footprints? So there's a lot that individuals can do, um, including a lot of the things that the caller just mentioned, which are really inspiring to hear about. 
Um, and different solutions work for different people. For some people, they can afford to invest in an electric vehicle and um, kind of shoulder that additional cost that exists for those right now. For other people, maybe that um, the action that feels easiest is to fly less. Um, but beyond those individual actions, what is really, really critical and so desperately needed here in the U.S. and around the world is action from our policymakers. So we need to have um, you know, comprehensive legislation and policies that really offer a sizable down payment on equitable climate action. Um, and President Biden's um, Build Back Better package would have done that, and, and Congress can still pick up pieces of that so that all of us have access to the kinds of choices that overwhelmingly, we see that Americans want to be making. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether it's limitations that your utility is putting on you or a lack of a rebate that um, the federal government could have enacted and, and did not get across the line, you know, those sorts of barriers have to start just falling um, so that we all have access to these kinds of choices. Um, and so, as, we're, as you're looking at what kinds of actions you can take as an individual, I would emphasize looking at the positions of your, your elected officials yeah. and people who are running for office. Because, um, you know, for so long, the science has been very clear. The consequences are clear. Uh, the solutions are clear and they're feasible and they're cost effective. And the real barrier here is on the side of the policymakers and on the entrenched interests of fossil fuel industry. Michael, we, we recently talked with Mayor Lightfoot's climate advisor, Kyra Woods, about uh, reducing our power consumption. Let's listen to a little bit of that. One of the ways that we can do that is taking advantage of existing programs that either our utilities use or helping to support businesses that are helping families retrofit or weatherize their home so that we don't have, you know, heat escaping in the wintertime and that we don't need to, you know, use as much of our AC uh, during the summer. But as we recognize the climate does change, uh, whether it is with increased stormwater or with precipitation and heavier storms mm -hmm. or increased temperatures over the summer, we want to ensure that families can be comfortable and that they can afford um, some of those changes that may need to take place. So the city's 2022 Climate Action Plan is coming out in a few weeks. Uh, Michael, briefly, what can you tell us about that? Just give us the highlights. Well, I mean, it's going to be more of the same, I think. Uh, it, it, exactly, you know, where the city is going to get any money to, to, to uh, encourage some of these things, it's a good question. Uh, federal, Unless it's a federal pass-through, uh, for example, with money coming from some of these bills that President Biden has been talking about. Uh, you know, I mean, we've we've known about this in the Chicago area since at least the mid-2000s when Mayor Daley commissioned one of these reports, Mayor Emanuel commissioned one of these reports. You know, I'm, I don't mean to sound, you know, like all like jaded old reporter here, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, the, the, you know, they're really nice-looking documents that have fancy graphics and make a lot of promises. Um, but, you know, we just have not gotten away from, say, natural gas uh, to uh, heat our homes and to, um, and, uh, you know, supply our stoves. Um, people's gas is charging a, a heck of a lot of money to dig up our streets and, 
and install new gas lines while other parts of the country are actually saying no to this. Right. Uh, the state, you know, city of New York, for example, new construction, no gas. Um, so it's another example of how our elected leaders, you know, say all the supposedly right things, but on the ground, in reality, there are these things happening that are going to lock us into um, a, a, a worse situation with regards to climate change. So, and, and so we're not having those debates. And I really, I think, you know, the, the one caller before about ComEd, you know, you've got all this nuclear energy. This is what I've asked the ComEd and Exelon people. Why aren't you incentivizing people to switch away from natural gas, for example, and uh, switch, you know, to electric that's, you know, uh, provided by climate-friendly nuclear plants. You know, maybe because also those companies have big investments in natural gas plants. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it, it, it all means something, and it's something that our elected officials, frankly, need to talk more about and not just gloss over with, uh, with promises that may not be kept. We'll have to leave it there. That's Chicago Tribune reporter Michael Hawthorne and Christina Dahl of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Michael and Christina, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.